Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're busting eight fitness myths. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 114 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we have eight fitness myths. Nicole, will we bust them all the way is my real question. We're going to try. I'm unsure if we're actually going to bust all of them completely. Uh, And what I'll say is that science and research is very nuanced and contextual. So within this, we're going to give you some context and kind of how to look at it, how to view it, because there are some of these where I'm like, uh, like technically speaking, but we're also going to shed some light on our opinions and our feelings based outside of the research and also based on our experience with clients and what works with clients, because I think that that is important to highlight and not just look at research because sometimes experience with clients paints a bigger picture than looking at at science and science just kind of gives you like averages over, you know, different populations, but you have to look at the individual and what they need to do also from a habit standpoint. Okay. Um, But the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about a recent survey on ponytail or not. (laughs) Well, you wait, you have to fill everybody in on what that, where it was, that was on Instagram. So if you didn't, if you took the poll on Instagram, I decided to take my man bun and turn it into a ponytail. Awful. And I did I did a survey (laughs) on whether or not I should keep it. And I took a picture of it and uh, the consensus is out. And actually, I think this is the most votes that we've gotten on anything. So because it's so horrible, people are very passionate about this (laughs) one. Uh, And the consensus was 70 percent of our audience told me get rid of it. Yeah. Um, One of my clients actually told me. If you keep that thing, you're fired. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's what I don't understand. I have been telling you that for how many months now? And all of a sudden, the poll on Instagram is what makes you make the decision. You've been telling me if it was up to you, (laughs) you've been telling me to get rid of the bun altogether. Then you went ponytail and I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't even deal. You know what the problem is? What's that? Nicole, and I'm going to reveal this on... uh, on on our podcast right now. <laughs> you don't fucking care what I think. <laughs> well, there's that too. But <laughs> if I cut this thing, mm-hmm. I'm going to be like almost bald underneath it. Oh, <laughs> so um, that my barber was like, let me tell you this something. Is, this is your I would prefer now. you and everyone I and everyone that knows and loves you would prefer you bald than to that horrible bun and pony braid, whatever you call it, ponytail. Get rid of it. That's you, just bald is very sexy. No, no, no. That's just because you have a thing for jacked bald guys. That's why I totally have a thing. Ridiculous. For like guys. you're like, hi, this is the Eat Right Nutrition podcast with Vin <laughs> Diesel, Vin <laughs> Diesel and Nicole. The Rock. I would go more with The Rock. Dwayne Johnson and Nicole. Okay, yeah. <laughs> great. <laughs> but bald way better than a man bun or ponytail. I, I no offense start... to the people that love man buns and ponytails. You can have them, but Daron cannot. Yeah, well, you know what? 
I got it and I'm it's staying. And uh wait, you know, you're you wait, you're seriously gonna keep the braid. You can't the braid I'm not gonna has keep to the, go. I'm not gonna keep the braid. I'm gonna keep you're the gonna bun. keep the bun. I'm gonna keep the bun. Listeners, listen up. When I get him alone, I will have I'm, scissors. I'm gonna have a buzzer. <laughs> I'm gonna slip something in his drink. He's gonna pass out. I'm gonna buzz his head. <laughs> Just one or two shots of tequila and he'll be down. And yeah. I'm cutting that thing off. Honestly, I probably will be down because I haven't drank in a million years at this point. <laughs> All right, moving along. Let's get into the episode here. Ladies and gentlemen, eight fitness myths may be busted, maybe not, but let's get into it. The first thing I want to talk about today is 1,200 calories. And I don't even know how to word this thing. It's it's the thought that 1,200 calories is how to lose weight or how to lose body fat or how to achieve the, the body that you want to achieve. Mm-hmm is 1200 calories. And as far as I know, I did a brief search. I didn't do an in-depth search on this, but I tried to trace back where it came from, where it originated. And apparently there is some book from like the 1920s that it may have come from there. It may have even been earlier than that. Um, I, I, I'm curious to look at, I wanted to do this, but I kind of ran out of time. Uh, the history of where we started actually looking at calories. Yeah, uh, that would actually be that would actually be an interesting podcast topic topic talk about to talk about why calories yeah. developed, how they developed, how we started measuring them, how we figured out yeah. how to measure them. Right. I think right, that that would be continued. Be, yeah, to be <laughs> continued. But um, it could date it could date back to 1920s. It could date back even earlier. Um, but there's there are some issues with this thought process around 1200 calories or 1200 calories or less. And Mm -hmm. the issue isn't that you're not going to lose weight because that's a big deficit for most people. Yeah. And I think the 1200 calorie thing, I think it's generally more geared towards women. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that is kind of like a staple, like, oh, well, I eat 1200 calories. Well, why do you eat 1200 calories? Well, because that's what you're supposed to do to lose weight. Yeah. It's just a, it is kind of a a random number. It gets thrown around a lot, but it is definitely common in more for females. Men tend not really be in a comfortable place to want to eat 1200 calories and be hangry all the time. Women think they need to suffer in order to do it. So, yeah. And I'll say this, I'll say there's the opposite side of this where people say that they're eating 1200 calories a day and they're not losing weight. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, well, then you're not eating 1200 calories a day. Yeah, that's that's really the consensus there. I don't think that there is any amount, in my opinion, I don't think that there is any amount of metabolic adaptation that would cause you to not lose weight at 1200 calories. Well, the myth is that 1200 calories is the number that you have to drop down to or follow or track to to lose weight, which is just ridiculous that everyone would follow the same amount of calories. But that's the myth is that you don't have to eat 1200 calories to lose weight. Everybody's different. Everybody's adherence is different. And I think the reason why 1200 calories tends to not work is because most women can't stick to it. It's almost impossible to follow. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about that with some data. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is does 1200 calories work, which we kind of already answered, but a 2014 study enrolled a decent amount of people, 2093 patients into a medically supervised diet with a low calorie diet being between 800 and 1200 calories per day and a very low calorie group being between 500 and 800 calories per day. And what they found was there was an average fat loss of 
4.7% over a 12-month period. And what was actually even more so interesting is that there's kind of seems to be in this study a threshold in terms of the calorie deficit that allowed you to lose additional body fat because there was no significant difference between the low calorie group eating 800 to 1200 calories per day and the very low calorie group eating, what was it? I said it was 500 to 800 calories, Mm -hmm. right? So there was kind of a threshold, probably some metabolic adaptation occurred there. I don't know if there might've been differences in terms of tracking. It seems to be uh, pretty tightly controlled. Another study had adults following a commercial weight loss program that provided either 500, 1200, uh, 1500, 1200 to 1500 or 1500 to 1800 calories per day. After one year, those on the 1200 to 1500 calorie per day diet experience an average weight loss of 15 pounds, which to be quite honest, over the course of a year, I don't think 15 pounds is really that groundbreaking, but 23% and Nicole, this goes to your point. And we see this a lot in, in fat loss and weight loss research especially when it's drastic, 23% of the 4,500 people following the 1200 calorie diet dropped out of the study. Yeah. And that's a decent amount of people. You're talking about a lot of people that are are, 23, almost 25%. You're talking about, what is that? Like 11, 1200 people that dropped out of the study that they couldn't comply. Mm -hmm. Studies have found that while initial weight loss using low calorie diets like 1200 calorie diets is typically rapid and substantial, it's often followed by greater weight regain compared with diets using only moderate calorie restriction. Mm -hmm. This is due to a few different things. It's due to metabolic changes, such as changes in leptin and other hunger hormones. It's also due to changes in thyroid hormone, as well as psychological barriers. And I want to take some time to talk about some of those things. So the metabolic changes, essentially what happens when somebody goes on a 1200 calorie diet is they lose the weight very rapidly and they have, and Nicole, this is something that you and I talk about in terms of, from a coaching standpoint, what is your exit strategy? Mm -hmm. Essentially when you're doing a, a fat loss diet, even if you're creating a large deficit or a small deficit. The goal is to sustain some of those eating habits and eat similarly to what you were eating like in that calorie deficit, just start eating more calories and get yourself back up to maintenance. But the problem is that people don't get themselves back up to maintenance and you do have some metabolic adaptation. So if you hit your goal weight after eating, uh, let's say you did three months at 1200 calories a day, you lost 20 pounds, you hit your goal weight and now you say, okay, well, I'm done. And then you go and you eat X number of calories like you were eating before. Let's say you go up to 2000 calories a day. It takes time for those metabolic adaptations, the changes in in thyroid hormone, Mm -hmm. the changes in uh, leptin levels, all the things that regulate your metabolic rate. It takes time for them to go back up, which is why we implement reverse dieting strategies with people. Okay, cool. You've hit your goal weight. Let's gradually bring you up. It's crazy to think I had a, um, well, it's crazy to think, let me say this first. It's crazy to think that we're still in a place where losing weight fast is still even an option because I think we've got enough proof here, both from a research standpoint and a practical standpoint, that it does not work long-term, like enough already. Like I'm so done hearing about it. It's not the way to go. Time to find something else to focus on. That's the first thing I'll say. And then the second piece is most of the time with, from a, 
from a practical standpoint, the clients that I have had that have come to me eating 1200,000 calorie diets are eating like three foods. Like it's not like they're eating a variety of vegetables and a variety of protein sources. They're literally eating three types of food options and they're doing that for the 12 weeks. They lose all the weight and then they go to live, quote unquote, a normal lifestyle where they're eating all different types of food. And not only do they gain the weight, but then their hunger for those foods that they took off, like off of the list, quote unquote, off of the list of what they can and can't have, they can't control. So it definitely it just wreaks more havoc, like slow down. Well, so what you're referring to is kind of like labeling foods as bad and not eating them, right? Yeah. Or just taking them out because they think that's too high in calories. So if I just take out carbs, for example, or I don't have bagels and bread and pasta, because for me, if I eat one, I can't control it. I have to have it all day long. So they just completely remove it from their food plan. And then you know, there's only so long that you can go doing that. And then after a while, (laughs) your body is like, all you can think about is carbohydrates. All you can think about is bread. And then it's impossible to continue to have quote unquote willpower to, you know, get you through You're you end up eating those foods and then some. Right. And that speaks to the psychological barriers that we're talking about. Which to me is probably the strongest factor as to why this does not. That's the biggest piece. Listen, we can talk about all the things that are going inside of your body. But at the end of the day, your psychology, like if you're not able to stick to something from a mental standpoint, it's just not going to work. Right. And a lot of women lose their cycles, can't sleep. You know, there's all type of you know, female issues that go along with that too, which is a recipe for disaster. Right. If they're eating too low amount of calories mm-hmm. and you you think about that from like a, uh, a biological level, right? What's really going on is there's not enough energy going into its survival. There's not enough energy going into the system. So your body has to shut down Functions. the ability, the ability to have a child to be childbearing because mm-hmm. Well, there's not enough food available. You can't even feed yourself. Why would I allow you to have a child? Right. That's essentially what's happening there from a hormonal standpoint with the menstrual cycle when you're going too low on calories. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about how the strategy should look. Okay. So I'm going to recommend for people to go. This is what I use. I know, Nicole, you use like um, sometimes you do catch McArdle. What I do is what I would say is this Google Mifflin equation calculator. And there's a website called calculator.net that has a bunch of different calculators, but it's going to be one of the top hits there. Mm-hmm. And then you'll go in there and you'll type in your age, your height, your weight, your gender, and then you're going to submit that. And then it's going to spit out what your basal metabolic rate is. And it's going to have different activity factors. You're going to find where you fall in there. And based on your activity, say you work out three to four days a week and it tells you you burn theoretically, right? It's just, it's a formula based on averages, but it's a good starting point for you. You burn 2,200 calories a day. From that point, if you want to create a deficit, you're going to create a deficit of anywhere from 200 to 500 calories daily. That's the appropriate way to go about it rather than just jumping to 1200 calories. Yeah. Or you can do something very simple, like multiply by 12. Yeah. Or 10, 10 or 12. Right. So, so can, you, a, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, if I'm, I just use this as a very simple example. If I weigh a hundred pounds 
and I multiply that by 10, then I'm going to be eating a thousand calories a day, a hundred pounds. If I weigh a hundred and, or if I weigh a hundred pounds and I multiply that by 12, I'm going to be eating 1200 calories. So for any woman out there that weighs more than a hundred pounds and you multiply it by 10 or 12, that's going to give you a general guideline. Like, I don't even think that's something that's set, but it's general. And the reason why I use that as an example is unless you weigh a hundred pounds, no one in the planet, no female should be eating a thousand to 1200 calorie range to, to in, in terms of normal weight or to even create weight loss. That's one. The second piece is if you just journal your food, like I always, we've talked about this before. I use my fitness pal. I zero out the calories and the macros. I turn everything off to zero and I just have clients journal for two weeks, eat whatever your natural rhythms are, what you crave and see where you are in a ballpark of natural calories. So most women are between maybe 17 and 19 or 15 and 17, somewhere roughly. And then we create that deficit based off of what they're currently eating. And you can go from there. And most of the time, everyone that is trying to eat 1200, when I say just eat the way you normally eat, they're definitely eating either way less than 1200. They're not even hitting 1200 or they're eating way more like 2200. Um, so, you know, you have to really be honest with yourself about where you're starting from. Yeah. And what I'll say is this to the point that you're bringing up that a person that's 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. can eat a thousand to 1200 calories. Mm-hmm. With that being said, what we also need to understand is that your basal metabolic rate, which is 60% of your total daily energy expenditure, yes. right? It's about 50 to 60%. A lot of your basal metabolic rate, first of all, you rarely, if ever want to go below that threshold. Right. That's first. But second, which you'll get the BMR estimated BMR if you use that website, right? But second, mm-hmm. what we need to understand is that your body size has a lot to do with your basal metabolic rate. So if mm-hmm. you are naturally a bigger individual, you are naturally going to burn more calories. Therefore, you need to eat more calories. Exactly. So if I have a client that's 200, a female that's 250 pounds, she's trying to eat 1200 calories a day. Oh my goodness. I just feel so bad. You're also going to be it's hungry. Almost- Why are you going to do that to yourself? Well, not only is she hungry, but here's what happens. She can't. So the hunger part is she can't maintain the 1200 because she's starving all the time (laughs) and miserable. She also can't get any workouts in because she's lethargic and tired. And so she's then not burning really many quality calories. And I say this all the time. There's a difference between being malnourished and being in an energy deficit. Being malnourished means that that thousand calories that you're eating of the highly restricted foods that aren't giving you all the nutrients that your body needs to have a menstrual cycle, to have good quality sleep, to have a healthy thyroid function, all the things for your brain to function, for you to have energy to work out. You're not giving your body any of that nourishment, fuel, energy, calories. So therefore, your body can't perform and live in a way that's going to be even in the readiness to change or create weight loss. So you're just perpetuating this negative loop of eating to not satisfy your body and then trying to perform to create change. And it just becomes really terrible, terrible and really not fun. So with that being said, figure out if you actually need, if you're small, that you can eat 1200 calories. If you're bigger than you know, 
That's that's number one. Yeah. Consider that. Put a stamp on it. Rubber stamp debunked. <laughs> All right. Number two is spot reduction. And I posted this on Instagram today. I took a poll. Should I look at the poll? What was the question? Did you ask? I Can you spot reduce if. Yeah. So I was like looking at the study and I was like, is spot reduction a thing? And 70% of you so far, 70% of you said absolutely not. 30% of you said no, wait, that's that's the braid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it was close. 75% of you said not nah, chill spot reduction. The question was, can you train a body part to localize fat loss? 75% of you said not nah, chill. And 25% of you said I can't do basic math. 25% of you said, <laughs> yup, that is a thing. So we are going to tackle this, this question now. And I think that from a mechanistic standpoint, some people are going to be mad at me, but I'm going to, we're going to elaborate. I think Nicole was, Nicole was actually mad at me too. When yeah, we I, argued about this on the telephone for like three days, when three days, it was like a <laughs> half a second. <laughs> Calm down. All right. So, uh, spot reduction. So let me just kind of highlight how fatty acid metabolism works. Which well, wait, you have to go back. What do you consider spot reduction? Okay, so spot reduction is the concept of if you train a body part, a muscle body part like biceps, if you train your biceps or if you train your arm in this context, we'll use a whole arm. Okay, if you train your arm and you don't let's and you only train that, will you lose fat? in that area, right? Because the thought process is mechanistically speaking, it would make sense to somebody who really doesn't understand how the, the body actually works. It would make sense that, Hey, this is the general thought process. If I do sit-ups, I'm going to be able to see my abs and what your typical trainer at the gym will tell you is, and also what I've been telling people for many, many years, you will strengthen your abs but you won't lose fat in that area Okay. by training abs. Okay. What you need to do is create a calorie deficit and lose whole body fat. Okay. Now this still stands true. Okay. You still need to do that, mm -hmm. right? You can't just do endless sit-ups and be in a calorie surplus and right. lose any body fat at all. Okay. I think that's the misconception that your typical off the street client yeah. that's never been in a gym and they come in and we do like a consultation with them. Yeah. And they say, I just want to I just need to get rid of that belly fat. How right. do I do that? Right. And or they'll say, Nicole, when you write my program, can you incorporate abs? Because Extra I want to lose, lose this and they'll hold on. They'll grab onto like a love handle or something. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So does that make sense? 100 percent. OK. Keep OK. Going. So that is the concept of spot reduction. And we can take that. And this is Nicole. This is where we kind of argued about it. We can take that and compare it to any other body part. We can look at arms and say, well, if I train my arms, will I lose? Will I take fat from my arm to fuel that arm during that workout and therefore lose body fat within that? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It just sounds so silly, but yeah. OK. OK, so let's talk about how fatty the fatty acid metabolism works. So okay. triglycerides are your fat storage within your muscle tissue. And when you exercise, they break down into free fatty acids and glycerol. So a triglyceride is just made up of three fatty acids and a glycerol backbone. Uh, those break apart and those are distributed throughout the body to be used for energy wherever they're used. 
This means that your body can use fat from anywhere in the body to fuel a working muscle, right? So this means that if I am doing squats, technically speaking, I can take fat from my midsection or my arms to fuel my legs, okay. right? It doesn't, it's not localized in the sense where you're like, I'm squatting, therefore I'm using the fat in my legs. Yes. Right. That we agree on. Yeah. Okay. So let's go into some research dating back to 1971. And I think there was one from 1968, but I didn't feel like reading it. And Nicole's shaking her head. She's like, you're reading an old ass study. 1968. But- <laughs> I wasn't even born. Were you born in 71? 73. Okay. Yeah. So you weren't even born. You were you weren't even a thought at that point. No. Nope. All right. So moving along. So 1971, a study on tennis players measured the active arm of tennis players versus inactive arm. So tennis players swing with one arm. Nicole, have you ever played tennis? No, you're from the hood. That's why they don't play tennis in the hood. You know, <laughs> oh, you, know what, you know what I recently watched? The Venus and Serena Williams thing. Yeah. And it's just like it's like they're in in the hood in Compton, like just playing tennis. Well, and so that's that's another myth. We're busting. What, that they don't play tennis in the hood? Yeah, I think that's not a myth. I think that's still a thing. It's just they were the exception. OK. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whatever. All right. So. Anyway, have you seen that? You haven't seen that movie? Well, no. Well, first of all, I Will haven't. Smith is a phenomenal. I love him. He's great. Well, he, I know he you is. love him, too. I do. Um, all right. So 1971, uh, you know, we're looking at the active arm. We're measuring uh, fat over a period of time uh, before and after. And it's using uh, subcutaneous fat measuring with uh, skin fold calipers. And what we found was different difference in muscle mass, obviously, because you're using that actively using those muscles more, but not subcutaneous fat as measured by the skin fold calipers. So this study from 1971 debunks the thought of the spot reduction. Calories not really mentioned. So that's kind of a factor that you have to look at, too. And you have to look at total body fat and see if body fat is lost even at all. A 2011 study measured abdominal fat and total body fat with subjects doing ab exercises and showed no change in body fat or weight at all. Subjects appeared to have been in maintenance calories. This would mean that either way, you still need to be in a deficit, right? And this is where the kind of like, you got to be in a calorie deficit in order to lose body fat. You can't just do sit-ups. So that study kind of doesn't do it for us either because it doesn't paint the whole picture. A 2017 study used a different protocol that measured body fat using a DEXA, which is considered one of the gold standard ways. I, you know, it kind of messes me up to say one of the gold standard ways, because in my eyes, I don't know when people considered DEXA a gold standard, Mm. but in my eyes, gold standard would be either hydrostatic weighing or bod pod. All right. So this used DEXA and had 22 women undergo 12 weeks of training. The women were randomized to upper body lifting and lower body cardio versus lower body lifting and upper body cardio. The results showed changes in body fat specific to the region of the body that was resistance trained. So if you trained, and here's where the nuance comes in. If you trained your lower body, and you did cardio right after, what the thought process is, is that the increase in body temperature in those muscles frees up the fatty acids. And if you do cardio afterwards, those fatty acids are going to be burned. If you are not doing cardio afterwards, those fatty acids are going to be restored. That is the thought. Now, this is the result of one study, so I wouldn't just take it and run with it. But I'm just giving you like we always do, real science, real facts, real food. 
Nicole, you're making a face. <laughs> oh, I have I had no I have nothing to say on this subject, honestly. What do you mean you got nothing to say? I know you have plenty it to say so the other day. Dumb. It, all this this to me is just so ridiculous. Well, speak. It's speak so ridiculous. Mind, I just spoke. It's dumb. It's just you know, it makes sense that our it makes sense to me. Like when I danced, I was a jumper. Okay. I jumped primarily on my right leg. It makes sense that my right leg was more developed from a muscular standpoint. It was stronger. It was easier to do things on. It was my more dominant side. When I tried to do that on the left side, I was clumsy. It was harder to control. So it makes sense when you say when you train like an athlete, like a tennis player, that the coordination and then the skill development is better. That makes sense to me. But I didn't have less body fat because one side of my body was more dominant in a skill than another. And I consider lifting a skill as well. So, you know, I have a, a dominant side when I do single leg leg press. I can press really easy still to this day on my right side dominant because I jumped and landed and turned on my right side. So does that mean that I'm going to burn more fat because I have a more dominant side or I have a weaker side that, that never really panned out? Are you going to listen? Uh, what I'll say is this, is that this study measured whole upper body, whole lower body. So, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? The other thing is we have to factor in this. We have to factor in genetic differences between individuals and where they naturally store fat. Well, thank you. And where yeah. they naturally take fat from, where it's yes. just kind of easier for your body because those obviously do exist. So this yep. is what I mean by it's nuance. But I don't. I would like to see over long periods of time, individuals like, are they leaner in certain body parts if they consistently hammer in those certain body parts over a long period of time and they do cardio after, like, like how this is nuanced. Mm -hmm. I would like to see... Uh, results and, and data showing that kind of stuff. And I think that's still to be concluded. I don't want to completely write it off just based on this information. Okay, you do your thing. I'm going to do mine. With that being said, I wouldn't advise people to bank on that and focus on that. What you need to do is obviously create a calorie deficit and just train all your train your whole body. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about waist trainers, Nicole. This, I think, is uh, oh. uh, this is definitely more of a female thing. This is, ex this is an exhausting conversation, too. So do waist trainers work? I think, is it Kim Kardashian that pushes waist trainers or does she push something else? Um, uh, Yeah, I think they've worn that. I think the the whole family has worn them. But I think she she has shapewear, which is like a Spanx type of. That's something thing. that you just That's wear different. under your clothes that just yeah, tightens yeah. up and then you put your yeah. shirt on over. You put, yeah, your dress on and hold things together. Yeah, that's like, I'm not 100% against that. Whatever makes you feel good. I mean, that's like wearing a, a, a corset. Corset, you, yeah. Corset or corset? A corset. Yeah, whatever. It's not a cassette. It's a, a corset. cassette. A cassette tape. Um, But, you know, I will say about that, Nicole, is as a male, mm -hmm. I think that's deceiving. Well, it is, but I mean... If you go on a it's date standard. with somebody and they're wearing that under their clothes mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, man, like, you know, she looks really good, tight body, like it's just it's deceiving. Yeah, I would, uh, listen, I agree with you. What's going to happen in the what's going to happen in the bedroom? Shit's going to be flapping everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's just not going to look like it does in the dress. Get over it. Uh, it's deceiving. It is. I, I don't disagree with you, but I think this is the standard of beauty. Like, I mean, we could have a whole we could probably do five podcasts in a row on all this. It's, that's what 
women think men are looking for one or that's what makes them feel pretty or sexy or whatever. I don't know. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. Listen, there are plenty of men that are looking for women that are full figured, bigger women. Of course. But waist trainers are do perpetuate that because the the concept of a smaller waist, you know, bigger chest, curvy hips and like, you know, in terms of the measurement is that hourglass figure type mindset. That's what women think they need to be. I mean, that's a that's a, that's body image. That's a whole topic of conversation. But do waist trainers work? I mean, if they did, I say this all the time. If they did, then everybody would be wearing them and be and be skinny in the waist. And it would it would like we wouldn't have jobs like it'd be so silly if they worked. But a lot of uh, I know a lot of women that wear them mainly because it makes them feel feel good. So I guess the big uh, question here, Nicole, is does a waist trainer decrease body fat in that? Area, no, right? waist trainers do not increase uh, or decrease abdominal adiposity. You're not losing fat by wearing it. You may lose weight during your workout because you are wearing something that is causing you to sweat more. Therefore, you're losing water weight from beginning to the end of the workout. And you're probably if you're working out hard enough and you sweat a lot, that's something you're going to lose water weight anyway. Maybe you'll lose a little bit more by wearing it, uh, but it's not going to change the shape. What's actually going to change the shape of your waist is trimming down from a standpoint of, again, calorie deficit, losing body fat, and that will work itself out. Yeah. And you also have to accept what your body looks like. Like, let's be honest, be good to yourself, ladies. Like you don't need a, if you want a smaller waist, May, I say this all the time. I've said it so many times on Instagram. If you want your waistline to look smaller, build a bigger back or build curvier hips or build your booty up or, or work your physique in a different way. But don't constantly try and make things look smaller. Well, that's a, that's one of the one thing like we would say that if with men in bodybuilding, if you want that X frame, grow yeah. your legs, grow your shoulders, grow your lats and yes. your waist will look small. It'll appear exactly. smaller. Yeah. Yes. So I agree with you on that. All right. So moving along, rubber stamp on that one. That one's debunked. Moving along, uh, eating breakfast boosts your metabolism. What is the thought behind eating breakfast? Meaning that it, when you say boost your metabolism, because you eat calories right out the gate in the, it, what like, does that mean? Kicks, it kickstarts your metabolism from the start of the day. And I'll be, I'll be honest, like I'm guilty of having said this early in my career. Mm -hmm. What I used to say is that the, your, if you picture your metabolism as, which was totally wrong, by the way, which I'll, I'll openly admit, but if you picture your metabolism as a furnace. Oh, yeah. You throw and, the wood you, on. You throw wood in or you throw coal, you're shoveling coal into yeah, it. Yeah, burns right? so, more. And I used to say that with like meal frequency too, that if you eat more, if you eat more frequently, right? If you eat breakfast in the morning, you're igniting that. And then you eat frequently small meals throughout the day. This is where when I was bodybuilding and it was like, you got to eat six, seven meals a day. Bro and science that boosts up your metabolism. Right. So mm -hmm. which now we look at it and it's just like, that's just ridiculous. Like eat anywhere between three and five and, you know, whatever works for you. Um, but it's not true. Um, I will say this. There are a couple of things that there are. I do still support eating breakfast, even though breakfast isn't shown to boost your metabolic rate. And there are a couple of things that I look like. So there are and there have been shown to be positive associations 
I feel like I've said this a few times on this podcast. There are positive associations with breakfast eating and blood glucose control, uh, as well as positive associations with eating higher protein at breakfast, uh, which would contribute to a more even distribution of protein. So if yeah. you're eating breakfast and you're having higher protein at breakfast, because let's be real, a lot of people eat pastries for yeah. breakfast or a bowl of cereal and like they're just out the door. Uh, maybe if you added like a Greek yogurt or, or some eggs to that, what that would do is it would contribute to the even distribution of protein throughout the day, which seems to have favorable outcomes for fat loss. If, if you compare it to, let's say a group that, uh, that was one of the studies that was in uh, Bill Campbell's, uh, uh yeah. what, I don't know, newsletter research review, yeah. um, is that if you evenly distribute your protein throughout the day by having a, a heavier, um, protein centered breakfast that you will have more favorable outcomes in terms of fat loss. So uh, there's a, a positive aspect there, but from a metabolic standpoint, there doesn't seem to be a difference. Uh, and I think where this thought came from was that observational studies tend to show that people who eat breakfast are metabolically healthier. They're at a healthier weight. Um, and they, this, this is, it's difficult to look at observational studies and conclude that because of confounding variables, right? So this could be due to other variables, like, uh, having a regular schedule, like people who eat a regular breakfast tend to have a regular schedule or people who eat a regular breakfast tend to get adequate sleep. And therefore they wake up early enough to have breakfast at home before they leave. Uh, or people that have breakfast, are able to control their hunger better, right? So there are so many different factors, and this is what we have to look at when we're looking at observational studies. Um, their studies are mixed in terms of caloric consumption, like do you eat more calories if you eat breakfast? Do you tend to binge later on in the day? Like that, that type of research is kind of mixed, so I don't even want to speak on that. But the assumption that eating breakfast kickstarts your metabolism first thing in the morning is false. However, I am still a proponent of eating breakfast. Yeah. Well, I always say that breakfast, like from a timing standpoint, I just use it this as an example with clients. Like if I'm someone that works six to two, six a.m. to two p.m., my breakfast is obviously going to be between six and nine most of the time. But if I'm someone that works 11 to seven, my breakfast may, be may be between 10 and 12. So breakfast to me is anywhere between from the time you wake up till noon. And then lunch for me is between 12 and four, or even five. And then dinner is between like five and nine. So like if you're within the window of breakfast, lunch and dinner, like, I mean, I don't know when you grew up, we had breakfast at 7 a.m. You had lunch at 12 and you had dinner at five. Like those were like kind of staple times just based off of a school routine or my extracurricular. But when you become an adult and you have different work schedules and all the things that go along with like routine, it doesn't have to be seven, 12 and five. It could be, you know, 10, four and eight. It doesn't matter as long as you're hitting it within that range. Yeah. I mean, I would say from a glycemic control standpoint, though, eating closer to the time that you wake up. But that's I think my point. Well, so if I, I think... wake up at six, nine a.m. or eight a.m. is when is when I wake up. If you wake up at 10 between 10 30 and 12 is your time frame for that window like yeah, you're not saying that if i work 11 a.m to 7 p.m i have to wake up at 7 a.m to eat breakfast no no no, no. i'm saying from right. the time you wake up to because right. then your last meal is going to be pushed later too probably exactly. if you wake up later in the day yeah all right so moving along 
Soreness means that you got in a good workout. So you, and this is like the group fitness mentality. Like if you, if I'm not sore, I, I didn't, you didn't do your job. You didn't work hard enough. Right. So <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you this. There was a thought years ago that soreness was from lactic acid. This was how I initially learned it. And now we know that it's not actually from lactic acid or any acid buildup, really. Lactic acid contributes to the burn that you feel during your workout, but not the soreness after. And to understand what lactic acid is, essentially, when you break down carbohydrates for energy, when you're doing a lift, you start feeling that burn because you start to accumulate lactic acid through doing that rep. And that's essentially your body is metabolizing carbohydrates and a byproduct of carbohydrate metabolism is lactic acid. So that's that burn that you feel while you're working out. All that means is that you're using carbs during your workout. The soreness, however, is due to microscopic tears within the actual tissue, right? So when you're lifting weights, you're actually, what you're actually doing is you're creating what's called micro tears. And these micro tears, when they recover and rebuild and you, you know, you eat protein and those amino acids come in and repair that muscle, that muscle builds and grows stronger. And this is also, I want to kind of put some context on this. This is part of the reason why when like to build muscle, it takes so long because when we're saying micro tears, we're talking microscopic tears that accumulate over a period of time to end up rebuilding bigger and stronger. That's why it takes because those you can't see those with your eyes. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if you get in a month worth of workouts and you have these micro tears and you're wondering why you're not seeing results in the gym, it's like, well, you are, but those results are microscopic and they haven't accumulated yet. Like give it yeah. more time. Yeah. But that's just a side note to that. Um, you're creating these micro tears and those micro tears are why you're sore, right? You've torn the muscle and now you're sore. Those micro tears have more to do with, or like that soreness has more to do with time, frequency, and intensity of your workout. And the soreness is what's known as DOMS, which is delayed onset muscle soreness, which is essentially... Uh, you're sore for, let's say up to 72 hours is considered like the threshold. Like if you're sore beyond that, then you just way overdid it. Mm -hmm. um, but usually it's the onset. Why it's delayed onset is because what you'll notice, and I'm sure anyone listening to this that works out, what you'll notice is that you will be kind of a little bit sore towards the end of the next day following a workout. And then that following morning when you wake up is where you'll you'll be the most sore, right? So it's delayed onset. It takes time. But that just has to do with, like I said, time, frequency, and intensity. The other piece to that is if you do a brand new workout that you've never done before, that's a new stimulus. And therefore, you're going to be more sore because the intensity, how your body perceives that stress of that new stimulus is a lot greater than the previous program that you did, but you go into weeks two and three and four of that program, you're going to find that as you progress through that program, you're getting less and less sore. However, that doesn't mean that you're still not getting those microscopic tears. You're still progressing through the program. You're still getting results regardless soreness or not. I only like feeling sore in my lower body. Right? Like it's so sometimes it works <laughs> with the lower body, lower body though. I will say with new clients and I haven't kind of pinpointed why or looked into why, but it seems like lower body always gets more sore yeah. than upper body. Well, I don't know if I would say, uh, well, let me think about that. 
I don't like soreness in certain areas of my body, like my chest, for example, my um, my mid back. When I get sore in those areas, I actually feel like I get stiff and this tension. Like I don't like the way it feels. So it's really uncomfortable. But you know, give me a sore butt, sore quad, sore hammies. I'm like, I love it. it feels so good. Not so much in the rest than the other areas. Like, do you have areas that you like to get sore in more than others? I'm just like when I literally cannot walk up the stairs, I'm like <laughs> so happy. I'm just thinking of how you like a sore butt. Um, <laughs> the I don't know. I'll take soreness anywhere. I don't like the unbearable soreness where like I can't walk for three days. Yeah. See, when my legs. like I love that. Not for three days. Day two after a workout when I like when I'm. So my soreness is more stiffness. Like it's it hurts, but it, it feels really stiff. I like, like the sti- kind of I move. like the stiffness because the stiffness, like the muscles feel. I, tight. I feel like things are tight. Yeah, yeah. I kind of love yeah. that. But yeah. in my chest, I hate it. Like I also feel like that those are areas that I don't work. I won't push myself as hard in areas that I don't want to feel soreness as much. So I'm I'm a big baby when it comes to chest and back. That's absurd. Admit that straight out. Although Nicole, you don't do a lot of. Uh, chest programming in general anyway i do like one i'll bench press that's about it but like right. once a week i'm terrible i'm not really I, I follow that's my bro exercise like i do chest press once a week but that's because i get so sore from doing it that i don't want to do it again in my program but i'll like destroy my shoulders my butt my legs i'll even sprint over doing chest yeah miss me with the sprinting yeah <laughs> all right my sprint's on a bike, not running. All right, moving along. Uh, let's let's talk about tone. Let's talk about being tone. It's like a client comes in. I, I just want to be. Toned. I heard it all day today. I just want to be tone. But yeah. I will say that I am getting tired of. I'm not even getting tired of. I've been tired of trainers saying, "Oh, what the fuck does that mean? That's so dumb." Like you know what I mean? Because well, here's the thing. Let me finish. The reality is this: if you're a trainer. And you've heard somebody say, I want to get tone. You fucking know what they mean. They're using the wrong terminology and they don't know how to get there is separate from the fact of like, that doesn't even mean anything. It does clearly mean something to people. Yes. yes, And they can visualize it in their head. Yeah. Whether whether or not they they know how to get there and what it's going to take to get there. That's a whole whole nother conversation. We need to stop when clients come in. We need to stop shitting on them and their terminology and their lack of knowledge because they're here to learn. Well, of course, of course. The first thing I say is tell me what you think tone or what does tone being toned mean to you? And they'll say, I want I want to be able to see my muscles. I'm like, okay, so you want to develop muscles and they but but this is where the line gets blurred. They go, I want to develop muscles, but I don't want to develop too much muscle. And I think. And you're right. We we need to be educating them instead of just being like, that's ridiculous to say because they just don't know. But at the same time, I want lean and I want what is it? Long and lean muscles. I just don't want that bulky stuff. And I said, well, you can't even possibly touch that. You're at not going to get there. You're a thousand calories eat. a day with a waist trainer on. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Spot reducing. Yeah. You're you're not you're. It it takes what we need to understand is this. It takes a very, 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 very long time. Again, I just talked about micro tears, right? So it takes a very long time to build and develop muscle. So you don't need to worry about and it takes a large it takes a calorie surplus over a long period of time. Like 
it takes a lot of lifting. It takes a lot of progression. It takes a lot like program after program after program. Like I can't even describe to you how long it is, how long it takes and how difficult it is to build a significant amount of muscle. But with that being said, in order to look tone and see outlines of your muscle, mm-hmm. you need to have some muscle. Yeah. So you're going to need to lift some weights and build some muscle. And if you get to a point along the way, here's the thing about building muscle. Oh, I don't want to build too much muscle. Okay. When we get to a place, a place where you feel like you're happy with the amount of muscle that you've built, guess yeah. what? We can stop. It can be a maintenance. Yeah. But I have had, I will say this. I've had instances where like I've had a couple of females in my caseload who really their upper body develops much faster than their lower. So we adjust programming in that aspect. And I have females that have very like thick bottoms and they're like, I don't want to build any more in my bottom, my butt. It's already big enough. And here's what always happens. I say you still need to build the strength in your butt, even though your butt, you feel like you're good enough in terms of what it looks like, because if you don't, we're going to create muscle imbalance. And so we're going to work on developing your quads and your hamstrings, and then you're not doing an equal amount of glute work. And then we're going to run into problems down the line when you want to squat more because you're not developing equally throughout the whole body. So I think that is important when we talk about tone, you know, everybody has the areas they want to tone, but we just talked about not being able to spot, create spot reduction area, like in individuals, but you have to be aware of like genetically what your body looks like in terms of how it's going to develop. Like I'm very honest with clients and say, well, we can do a little bit different work on your upper body if you don't want, you know, females are always panicked that their back gets bigger or their quads get bigger and they can't fit into jeans if they start to develop muscle. But that, you know, there's, that is an overall program and nutrition adaptation, not. Well, I think the, uh, you're so huge. (laughs) The, um, almost like the, the same person that wants to be toned is it's like synonymous with the same person that wants to eat 1200 calories. Well, that's what, yes. And And we're a waist trainer. (laughs) And it's like you want to eat 1200 calories to get toned, but you're not understanding that you want to see muscle and therefore you have to build it. Yeah. I mean, I also have clients that have come in females that go, I don't want muscle. I just want to be skinny. Nicole, like, so don't give me all the strength training stuff. I heard you say it. I'm not doing it. I just want to lift very light weights and I just want to be thin. Okay. I disagree with you from a health standpoint, but if that's what you want, I'll give you that. No problem. Be easy on me. Yeah. I mean, customer's always right at that point. Yeah, exactly. Fine. No problem. As long as you understand what you're doing and you're getting yourself into, right? And you well, understand I, what the I've ramifications. Also, yeah. And what I've also gotten to is we, I, this is, this goes back to what you used to say to me, just do it and let them feel it. And when they feel it and it doesn't feel the way they thought it was going to feel, then the questions start coming. So I'll go, okay, let's give it a try. And then they do it and they don't see the tone that they want, or they don't feel as strong. And they're like, this doesn't, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. And then I go in for the kill with the strength training. All right. So moving along, we are going to talk about uh, building. I think this is more so for uh, any trainers and coaches listening to this. Cause I know that you guys are out there. Um, you can't build muscle using machines. You know, it was interesting. There was a saying in the first gym that I ever worked in, and it was, we don't use machines. We make machines. Well, who, oh, really? Yeah. We used to say like, we make, we, we turn you into a machine. We don't use machines. Oh, we just use uh, well, it, was like one, it. it was like one of those right over your head. Nicole. Yeah. Boom. 
Um, but there's a recent study and there's some research out there that uh, shows the same changes, right? So whether you're using um, a, whether, whether you're doing a traditional squat or a Smith machine, strength, oh, increase, I see what you're saying. strength increases in no dip with no difference between groups uh, and muscle size increases with no difference in groups, whether you're doing a barbell bench press or a machine press there is, you're still going to be able to build a significant amount of muscle, right? Essentially what you're just, you're still loading the muscle, right? So it, it makes sense that you are going to build muscle. And what I will say is for somebody who let's say has never worked with a trainer, doesn't really understand how the body works. That may also be a, a safer alternative to using a free weight especially if you're just getting started out. So why would I want, why would I try and even say, oh, well, a machine's not going to be as efficient. A, it's not true. And B, that person needs to start somewhere. Yeah, uh, I've never heard that one. Actually, when you told me that, I was like, is that really a myth? Well, well you're I not mean, disputing it whether a it's myth, a myth. But I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just is it really something. Is, people it a converse, think? is it a conversation? Yeah. I've heard it. Really? Um, which is why I chose to include it. Or maybe it's not a myth and I'll just go fuck myself. No, I've heard that machines are bad from like stability. Like you're not using your whole body. Okay, so so here's my so isolated. So, so here are my thoughts on that. Okay. I come from a bodybuilding background. Mm -hmm. Everybody who knows me knows this. And I'm like stability where you, you have like people doing like dumbbell presses with their legs up in the air instead of on the floor. I'm like. The purpose of doing a dumbbell bench press is to, to train your chest, right? So yeah. if I want to train my core, I'll train my core. But like this whole, you have to incorporate full body and functional movement, like miss me with that shit. Well, that's what I'm the, when you said this, you, your example of the Smith machine squat versus like a barbell squat or something like that, like the Smith machine, you don't, it's locked in and like you, you, what I'm like, listen, Here's what I have to say about all of that. Machines, free weights, BOSU ball, like all that stuff. If you depend, one, it depends on the person. Two, it depends on the goal. Three, it depends on what your body is capable of doing, right? Like I have someone with the total hip replacement. I have two ladies with knee replacements. Right now, machines are great because they're still working out and I'm getting them to do stuff and we're progressing them through all of their PT. So I think you need the broad term, broad, um, what is it? Like a broad umbrella. sweeping umbrella yeah, of saying you should or should do it this way is just again so silly. There's a place for everything in every body. Yeah. Um, the one thing I will say is this, and I'm going to put again nuance to this, but uh, what we did find for some reason is that uh, free testosterone in men actually increased more when doing free weights versus doing machines. However, I will say, what we know from research now, and this is something that I learned later on, acute increases in testosterone from a workout, they don't mean anything in the grand scheme of your total testosterone levels. So there's actually really no advantage to a little spike in testosterone levels after your workout. And clearly you can see that because there's no difference in muscle mass. So like I said, there's no advantage to when when people say, oh, well, working out increases testosterone levels mm -hmm. over long periods of time, yes, it's going to be more beneficial. You're losing body fat, you're increasing lean mass, and just doing that in general 
is going to increase your testosterone levels naturally. Mm -hmm. But those acute spikes post-workout, they don't mean anything. They go, it goes up a little bit and then it goes right back down to baseline. All right. So moving along, the last one that we have here is tracking calories on a heart rate monitor is an accurate way to measure caloric expenditure. This goes to the people who are just constantly on their watch looking at if you're wearing a whoop or if you're wearing a, uh, well, let's look, let's go through this uh, 2017 study and we'll look at the devices here, right? So a 2017 study measured heart rate and calories burned using seven wrist-worn heart rate monitors. Uh, the first one was the Apple Watch. Then the basic peak, basis peak, Fitbit Surge, Microsoft Band, Neo Alpha 2, Pulse On, and Samsung Gear S2. So it looked at heart rate and calories in, in various different activities to make sure that they covered all parameters. So you're sitting, you're walking, you're running, and you're cycling. And you're seeing what is your heart rate compared to the gold standard for measuring heart rate and what is your calorie expenditure compared to indirect calorimetry. And what we find is heart rate was pretty accurate across all activities and all watches with the Apple watch being the most accurate. And for calories burned throughout the workout, when compared to indirect calorimetry, the results of the watches had an error between 27% and 92%. So I mean, 92% is a lot. And 27% is a lot like with heart rate. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, the variance was about 5%, which is pretty negligible. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at 27% of calories, you're looking at a difference between let's say, let's call this round off to 25%, right? If you had, if you burned 400 calories, that's an extra give or take in a, like a hundred calories, mm -hmm. right? So relying on your watch for calories. Like if you, if you're trying to lose body fat and that's your, your main goal here, uh, which first and foremost, I always say that working out should be about a lot more than just burning calories. It should be about getting yeah. stronger. It should be about metabolic adaptations. You do cardio, you're increasing mitochondrial density when you're doing aerobic activity. And that also contributes to metabolic changes in the long run that are going to benefit you from a fat loss standpoint. Uh, if you're building muscle, uh, you're, you're increasing your metabolic rate through just having more muscle mass, right? So all of those things combined, just exercising in general is going to create a metabolically favorable environment. And that should be your focus. If your primary goal is fat loss, not just how many calories you're burning, but if you're trying to do a calorie inverse calorie out thing, you're never really going to get an accurate number for how many calories are coming out of the system. So the easier thing or the best way to approach it is to create a calorie deficit on the intake and make sure that you're as active as you can be focused on your steps, doing your cardio, doing your lifting three to five workouts a, a week, making sure that all of those things are covered. And if you're not losing weight, just create smaller deficits over periods of time to make sure that you're losing that, that weight and make sure that you're accurate about your tracking. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what I have to say about yeah, that. But don't I agree. But the thought that, hey, like, look how many calories I burned on my watch. That's not it's not even a thing because it's not going to be accurate either way. And like I said, you're that's not what you should be focused on. Yeah. And great. You burned calories. Whoop de do. Whoop de do. All right, Nicole. Anything else you want to add? No, I think we got them. I think we busted them all. 
We almost busted them all. No, we busted. We busted them all. I busted them all. (laughs) Great. Nicole's the judge here. All right. So that's it. That is eight fitness myths, almost busted or busted, depending on who you ask. And (laughs) if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 